1: The Telegraph.
2: Telegraph. Podcasts.
3: Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact in association with The Telegraph. I'm Brian Moore. I'm back in the studio this week is the former England and Lions fly half, Rob Andrew. Good evening, Rob. Hi, Brian. Headlines. Bristol have returned to the Premiership. They are now called the Bristol Bears, and the reasoning for that is in a 19-page document, uh, which includes a club is awakening from hibernation. That's the phrase. I don't know exactly what that means. Uh, Rob, look, it's not for people our age, is it? It's for young people. It's for merchandising and so on. However, there is a Bears as cricket team Bears, isn't there?
2: I've I've been thinking of Birmingham Bears all day. All so. right. <laughs> the cricket team, um, obviously, the, the, the what were Warwickshire, they call themselves yeah. Birmingham Bears for the T20. They call themselves Warwickshire in the championship, but obviously we've got two teams called the Bears now. Well,
3: we'll see. There could be an intellectual property fight there, and if they want a lawyer, I know a good one. Um, bearing in mind the backing that Bristol have got, they should, for once, make a real run of this now, shouldn't they?
2: Yeah, look, they should, and, and obviously we can go on about the bears. We've everybody had a name, we had to find one for Newcastle. Newcastle Falcons. It had been Newcastle Gosforth, so it, it's it's a marketing ploy. Whether it works or not, I like the strapline "Awakening from hibernation." I, I hope they don't get relegated next season. Because presumably <laughs> they, they go. The, where will the bear go <laughs> back into hibernation? But no, look, I don't think so this time. A um, lot of money. Um, Pat Lamb done a great job. There's no doubt, in my mind, I think they are the most underperforming uh, rugby club in the professional era. You go back over 20 years, I think they've had two or three goes in the premiership. They've had quite a lot of money from various owners over the time. A massive, massive backing, and now obviously gone to Ashton Gate with uh, Steve Lansdowne. And they should be probably the biggest rugby city in the country. Um, so if they get it right, which is what they've tried to do for 20 years, and it's not easy to get it right, then you know, they should really be a massive force.
3: Well, look, I mean, they've got a long uh, tradition of rugby in that uh, city. But I just wonder, given the ubiquity now of football, and the success of the two Bristol uh, teams in football, whether that constituency is still there do you think it is
2: yeah i do i do think it's still there i've been to a few games at ashton gate um when they moved there um you know and if they're successful they they will get big crowds you know it's a great stadium um if they get, make the right signings which i'm sure i'm sure they they will they've already made quite a few and they've they've got a very had a very strong side in the championship um yeah the football club obviously is is on the move as well but it's a big city, Bristol, and the history of of rugby. It's a little bit like sort of wasps going to Coventry and re- reawakening to a degree the sort of the Coventry um, interest and in history in rugby. A- another big city, um, which which wasps have tapped into. So, yeah, I, I, we shall watch with interest because it's been it's been a sort of on-off saga really for the twenty years of professional rugby.
3: Well, Exeter secured a home. Semi-final, six tries, they put over London Irish and with the best will in the world, that's probably London Irish down, isn't it? I don't know if the backing will stay there longer term. Certainly in the short, medium term, it's likely to. But I do know that they're looking for another investor to come in and spread the load. And I'll just make this point. If you don't see that investor come in, you're in danger of seeing another big name go completely.
2: Yeah, and I think London Irish have um, have always had a slight challenge and it's always been based around whether you own your own stadium because in order to really make the numbers work and the numbers are getting bigger and bigger, um, you really have to, to have a stadium which works for you 365 days a year and you've got to take as much match day and non-match day revenue as you possibly can. And obviously when you rent somebody else's stadium, that does make it a bit of a challenge and it's probably it's probably never quite worked out at the Majeski stadium that's why they're looking to come back into london back to near their their sort of spiritual home which is in sunbury in south west london um but it's it's a big cost and you're absolutely right you know it, it sort of be slightly ironic um and you go back in history and sort of richmond and london irish uh, sorry london scottish got rolled into London Irish when Richmond and London Scottish went sort of out of the game, their names went into the London Irish holding company and Richmond and, Irish, and Scottish had to start all over again. You could see you know with Welsh having gone right down the leagues as well it's not it's not beyond the bounds of possibility to think that Irish could go the same way
3: well Ceres have secured a uh, playoff place, but let's look at the rest of the places Leicester, uh, lost to Saints. It was a it was a hell of a game. Uh, fairly unreconstructed but uh, it was a typical East Midlands derby and Wasps beating Worcester continued the push and Newcastle's victory over Sale leaves them all fighting for the places. Any idea who's going to come out on top of those three?
2: Well it was such a poor performance by Leicester really. We sort of sat here last week and said it's Wasps and Leicester's to lose, really. Gloucester
3: Gloucester could still qualify. They,
2: they, they could, they could sneak, sneak through, obviously, with getting a bonus point and with Sale losing, but um, I, I still think that Wasps and Leicester are the favourites. Oh. I, I just think it was a really flat, poor performance, whether they just turned up and, and thought Northampton were going to just roll over, given what happened, Northampton shipping 63 points the week before at home. But they didn't. They fronted up. Um, Leicester were pretty flat. And I think we all know if you, if you don't get it right mentally in a game of rugby, which Leicester didn't appear to, they've really got to get it right next week, uh, the week after, after Europe. Newcastle at home will probably determine which one of those two probably takes the fourth spot, with Wasp probably taking third.
3: Well, you've got intimate uh, knowledge of the Newcastle operation. And if they were to secure... Uh, a playoff place. How big would it be for that team going forward?
2: I think it'd be enormous, huge. I think. I mean, Dean's done a fantastic job up there. Um, you know, it's a bit of a resurrection in a way of of his own career. Um, he sort of went back, back. Well, not back up to the northeast. He went up to the northeast. He's he's. And I know he's enjoying himself up there. He's got a quiet life out in the Northumberland countryside. Yep. He's, he's hunting, shooting and fishing <laughs> yes. when, he's, uh, when he's not uh, plotting the rugby, the rugby club. He's built a strong side. Um, he's been very clever. Dean always has been about recruitment. He's got players that are there all the time. He doesn't lose many players to international rugby. Well, I remember speaking to him about this on uh,
3: this podcast
2: and he said that,
3: first of all, he looked for the players with the right character. And he didn't mean necessarily just the players who would front up week in, week out on the field. He said because of where Newcastle is, its geographical isolation, they had to be comfortable in a relatively uh, small uh, arena where they would be well-known, where they wouldn't have necessarily the bright lights of London or other bigger cities. And they'd have to be comfortable, you know, in that. And he seems to have been able to... Pick the right players.
2: Yeah, and and as we know, recruitment, signing of players, and getting it right, and keeping a big squad reasonably happy because you mm. these clubs are carrying, you know, nearly forty plus players to mm. to to marry those all together into a into a harmonious unit that wants to battle week in week out across a very very long season, tough season which the Premiership is. A lot of travelling as well, as I know from Newcastle, spend yep. a lot of time on the bus together, um, and if you don't get on you know, things can start to go wrong. But they look like they're a group of players that are fighting hard for each other. They're playing some good rugby as well. Mm. I think the other thing that changed significantly a couple of years ago was the laying of that artificial pitch yeah. at Kingston Park. Um And actually, credit to Dean and to John Wells, who who are there, and obviously Dave Walder as well, sprinkling some of the... I can't, can't imagine Welzy and Dino doing the backs moves. <laughs> no. But um Dave Walder's you know, done a good job, they've, they've recruited well, and it, it would be, if they could get into the playoffs, you know, the championship, they didn't, well, we won the championship in 1998, 20 years ago, uh, a couple of cups since then, but they've not been anywhere near um, the top of the English premiership since, since then, really.
3: Well, other news, the Aviva Premiership is to become the Gallagher Premiership rugby next season. New sponsor. It's taken a while, but uh, they've secured one, which is good news. The Commonwealth Games, England won bronze in both the men's and women's sevens. Now, I just a final comment on this. From a women's perspective, there was a lot of hoo-ha about majoring on sevens and therefore taking away 15s players. And I just make this point. Australia, who came second, and uh, New Zealand won both, They are targeting the sevens because they don't have the money, frankly, to compete in the 15s game, nor are they necessarily as good in the 15s game. And I just make this point. Unless you are going to win these tournaments, and I know it's very difficult when you go into one, but unless you're going to win them, the wider aim for women's rugby in this country is to grow the game. That's what it's all about. And if you are denying people the sight of players, just for example, like... Emily Scarrett, on a, you know, reasonably uh, frequent basis, and you're not winning the Six Nations, which is the showcase tournament anyway in the Northern Hemisphere f- f- 15s. I can't see the point in doing that.
2: Yeah, the counter-argument is, is it growing the game by playing in the Commonwealth Games and, and, and the visibility of women's rugby, the visibility of
3: Well, they'll be playing there anyway, and if they're not going to win it, and, you know, the best will in the world they could probably not concentrate on the sevens game and still get to a third, fourth place playoff with the players they've got and a full-time professional basis, albeit on fifteens, then surely a the more important thing is not to denude your domestic club competition, the Premier, the Tyrells uh, Premiership and the Six Nations of what were starting to be, in rugby terms, household names.
2: Yeah, and, and there's obviously missing out on the, the women's six nations as well and the profile that that brings it it's a it's a good debate there will be count there's arguments on both sides Well, the, the ideal fence. is that they
3: they feature both yeah and they have their money but if they can't do that and we understand they might not be able to then for me i'm sorry you've tried this not worked time to think again and put them back in the 15s yeah yeah Time now to switch to a man who I didn't think would necessarily ever move to Scotland, but he has done. My old sparring partner of a long, long time ago, it's Richard Cockrell, uh, is on the line. Good evening, Richard.
0: Evening, Brian, how are you?
3: How are you? I'm here with Rob. I didn't ever imagine you going to Edinburgh. I'm not sure necessarily you would have done either. What? Look, in all honesty, Edinburgh weren't doing well. They are doing a lot better now. And what have you changed?
0: Where where do we start? Um, well, mentality. just have a go.
3: Have a go. <laughs> well,
0: somewhere. work ethic, understanding what it takes to, to be good, and trying to win. Um, changing a mindset of not waiting for the international um, games to come around before they start performing. Um, just putting club first and 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 test rugby second. Um, but you know, a, a byproduct of that is getting a. a as good a quality as club side as we can get, which obviously um, is a knock-on effect to the national side.
3: Can you tell what are the differences between um, Leicester in the Premiership and Edinburgh in the Pro 14 that we might not know about?
0: Oh, I mean, it's just a very different dynamic here. Purely, there's t- two professional teams, so that's mm-hmm. one that's, that makes the player pool very small, and there's probably 100 professional players in, in, in Scotland and 35, 40, 40 of those will be in the, in the, in the test test squad so um, you have to um, coach and create and help those players get better, I mean there are some very good players you know, that we've seen that in the Six Nations, there's some very good young players that are coming through, um, but it's very much more um, developing and creating an environment and getting the best out of those players to one play for Edinburgh or Glasgow and obviously play for the national team, so it's a different coaching challenge in lots of ways and um, as much as you'd like it to be, it's not always about um, the result every week. It's about creating players for the national team, but also trying to get the, the club side as good as they can be.
3: Richard, one of the things I said about Andy Robinson when he was um, the England uh, head coach was that sometimes it seemed to me that he approached a problem that he had playing-wise by just choosing another player from somewhere else. Mm. And when he went north and he couldn't do that, and he had to work with a relatively limited um, squad. His forte, which is coaching, came to the fore because he had these players, and he had to make them better. And that indeed was what, what was what he did. Is, is is that partially true for you? Oh, de-
0: definitely so. I mean, it, it's such a different coaching challenge um, because you you know we've pretty much got what we've got, and we have to make the best of that. And like I said, there are some very good players. We have to try and make them realise how good they are and could be and can be um, and get a bit of self-belief in some of them um, that that maybe don't believe in themselves as much as they they should. But it's a very different coaching challenge to to Leicester or Toulon where you just have to win. And it's not about developing players necessarily. It's just about having to win on Saturday. Whereas here, of course, we want to win every time we play, but there is a bigger challenge of developing players. And knowing that you haven't probably got the money to go into the marketplace at the, world-class end as, as often as you'd like. So you have to get young players through. There is no relegation in this competition, so that, that, that has a, a a slight different mindset that you can actually take some risks with young guys and bring them through knowing that in 12 months they'll be better and in 24 months they'll be better again. So it's, it's just a different mindset, really.
2: How it been f- for you as a coach, given how, what you've experienced? And, and sometimes, you know, is a change for the coach really good for you as well and and what you've learnt and and changed given all your experiences and sometimes maybe we've seen coaches perhaps stay somewhere for for too long and maybe get a bit stale.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. I I probably didn't want to leave Leicester um, as as they removed me from my post but, um, you know, we've all been there. Um, But then you have to make the best of it. So too long was a great experience in a different way. Um, Actually coming out of the comfort zone of Leicester and just those experiences and using those experiences but here in edinburgh um you know it's my experience that both leicester and, and toulon have been been fantastic and i can apply those to here and try and improve um this environment and it's a, it's a pretty good environment but there's always different things you can bring and all the stuff i know which is old to everybody else that i've probably worked with for 10 years is new up here so it, it, it's refreshing in that in that regard and um you, you know, you can make a difference when you come to a club that needs improving. Um, you, you make an instant difference and an immediate difference and you see the improvement. Um, and I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying um, dealing with different players and different challenges and seeing the improvement in this group at the moment. Um, like I say, as you know, Rob, uh, in the red very sharp end, it's just about winning. Where, where he yes, you'd like to win, but it's not always about the winning, it's about developing at the same time.
2: Yeah, which is refreshing, isn't it, for you, um, and now you've got the challenge of of Glasgow it's coming up soon again. And how, how's that rivalry up in Scotland?
0: Yeah, no, it's um, yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure it's quite has the same uh, bite as Tiger um, Tiger Saints, but um, <laughs> not, well, not yet anyway. Less I'll, violence, I'll, I'll, anyway. <laughs> certainly. I'll try to it. No, but, but but it but it's good because you know Glasgow are a quality side, and we're a side that's um, trying to um, trying to improve. But uh, as I, as I've learned in, in the Couple of derbies that we've we've played already. Um, It doesn't matter what form Edinburgh are on when they play Glasgow. They're always up for it, and it's Mm. it's always a a good battle. So we weren't all in the series at the moment. So um, no, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting uh, derby in a couple of weeks, and um, you know it's it's a very tasty uh, tasty rivalry.
3: Because I got a question from uh, a listener. It's uh, Joe Chambers. He said, "How sustainable is the Toulon project if uh, Murad said goodbye?"
0: Well, I mean that's an interesting one. I think you could say that probably about a lot of clubs in France yes, and England. And yes. England, to be fair, I mean I think Mourad's um, done, done a fantastic job there. I know he has his critics, and he does things in his own way, but he's put his money where his mouth is, and he's um, he's made that club what it is today. So you have to give him a huge credit for that. Um, I think he's uh, certainly a solution to a problem they've had, and sometimes he, he, he creates the problems that they have too. So, um, but look, like anything, I think uh, it's those. So, big money owners pull out, where does that lead any club, whether that be in England or, or
3: France? Uh, Richard, you mentioned the issue of relegation and linked it to how you're able possibly to bring people on earlier than you thought and stay with them. In this country, there's a big uh, groundswell. Well, it's not a groundswell. I think there are certain people who just will not countenance ring fencing. They say, you know, it's against the spirit of the game, et etc., et cetera, et cetera. I've tried to point out that the reality, actually, is that there isn't uh, a huge amount of uh, people who are willing to put two, three million in every year and see it lost. You've seen a situation where it isn't there. What Has that changed your view on uh, that particular issue?
0: Yeah, and it's a very difficult one. I mean, I, I, I sort of like relegation because you want to have the dream of teams coming up and down, and you want to have something to fight for every game, every week. Um, but certainly, from from my point of view, um, especially as a developing club like we are, is that you can blood 18-, 19 year nineteen-year-old lads and develop them, and knowing that you know I'm still getting my head around and trying to trying to get my coaching mindset around. Well, we're probably going to go to a Leicester or a Munster, and we're probably not going to win but we can still take real positives out of what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's getting young lads through. And you, you, you can play them because, yes, the result's important, but it's not the be-all and end-all for us at this point. It might be in a year or two or three time. Um, so I, I think that the lack of, um, you know, and, and people ask me all the time about the difference. The difference is if you're a bottom-two team and you play the top team, you're trying to win because you need every point and you're scrapping for every, every point in the league. But that might dictate how you play, how you approach the game. And we we play a very open game at Edinburgh because I could afford at this point to develop our game. And Mm -hmm. the only way to do that is is to play ball in hand and and do what we're doing. If you're a a London Irish or a Worcester, you might just kick it in the air and chase it and hope you win by three because that's the only hope you have got against those bigger teams.
3: Just a final question. How's the yoga still going? Yeah, so I'm. Um, um, well, um,
0: no, no one likes fat coaches, and no one likes coaches. So I just, um, I just, uh, it keeps me sane. It's nothing else. Well, uh, as you know, this is all relative, Richard. It's yeah, all it's relative,
2: go, <laughs> really. <laughs> exactly. Well,
3: but it's hot yoga, isn't it? Are you sure that works? I'm not sure it works hot.
0: yoga. I'm not sure it works either. So it, it, keeps, my, it keeps my mind sort of balanced.
3: All right, mate. Listen. Uh, yeah. Good luck to you. I've watched your coaching career and I've, I've absolutely marvelled um, at it. I think it's been fantastic. So the best of luck to you, mate. Good to speak to you again.
0: Cheers, yeah, thanks a lot for coming.
3: Cheers, Okay, we're going to turn to European Champions Cup rugby. And obviously this, look, this point has had virtually no coverage in this country. In Ireland, it's been an absolutely enormous case and you can understand why. It's the issue of Paddy Jackson and Stuart Alding. Um... I can see why a lot of British writers haven't wanted to touch it because it's a very emotive subject. I did touch it and I simply said this. At the end of the day, legally, they were found uh, not guilty of all the charges brought with them, as indeed were all four. And that means, I'm sorry, there is no not proven uh, in our legal system. That means they are innocent of those charges. However because of the way the trial developed and because of the investigative process, the WhatsApp group messages between them did come into the public eye. They were very unsavoury. Uh, let's face it, these lads are not the youngsters. They're 26 and 25. They've now had their contracts revoked by Ulster and Ireland. Some people are saying it's because of pressure for our social media, by our feminists, who've been marching under the banner, uh, We Believe Her. And I made a few points. I just said, look, If you're marching in support of her, you can do that, I understand that, but you can't then say or imply that that means they are guilty because they've been found not guilty. Simple as that. When they were terminated or the contracts were revoked, some people said, this is all down to sponsors, it's all media pressure. And I said, yes, it is. And you know why? Because if you want sponsors to give you a large amount of money, You can't expect them to have no say when something happens that affects their brand because that's the way sponsorship works. And a lot of people have said to me uh, about the column, in your day, what about the... I said, look, first of all, we're not in my day. It's as simple as that. We're not in my day anymore. I didn't play under a contract that had disrepute clauses. And if I had done, then I would have been in the same position as them. Just right now, if... After, uh, you know, uh, an alleged rape trial came through and messages on my private WhatsApp group, which is not private anyway, because it's social media, that's what it's called social, came into the public domain, I would have to satisfy uh, the people engaged with the Daily Telegraph, uh, the BBC and so on. I'm confident I could do it, actually, because I know on my social media there aren't things there. But I made the point, it's not personal, it's business. We're always talking about business, and the fact is they may well have fallen foul of this, but actually they and all modern players should know that when you are on social media, first of all, it's not private, never is private. Even Snapchat isn't private when you can make messages disappear because people can retain them. If you don't understand that the 10-megapixel cameras with video facilities and internet connection phones make you a public target at each and every opportunity when you go on there, then you better learn. And yes, they are unlucky in this sense. They've been caught on what were private messages, but they should have known this. And as a a father of four daughters, I think those messages were pretty poor. I mean, very, very poor. And at the end of the day, when you're talking about second chances, yes, it may well be that they will find some Organization that will give them a second chance, and they probably deserve a second chance because everyone does, but they can't complain if in the instant now the Irish Rugby Union and Ulster believe they've damaged their brand, however the pressure's come, and that at the moment they are not able to accommodate them because of the damage done.
2: And it's absolutely at their discretion as the employer, yep. given, the, given the contract's Look, I, it's very simple. This the modern world in which the modern sportsmen live. Regardless of whether you're a rugby player, cricket player, if whatever you do now, um, he, he, you know certainly social media, you, you've got to imagine it's going to find its way onto the front of a newspaper or the, or a television screen. You've got well, to, someone's going to photograph it or record of it. Of course they are, and that's the whole point. And trying to get the message. If you're throwing dwarfs in Queenstown at three o'clock in the morning in a World Cup somebody's going to find out about it. And the modern sportsmen, whether they like it or not, and whether they think it's tough or whether it wasn't like that in our day, of course it wasn't like that in our day. We, we weren't being paid. They're being paid hundreds of thousands of pounds. There are millions and millions of pounds being put into sport. Magellan pulled out of the Australian test, being an Australian test sponsor on the back of, of the ball tampering situation. Oh. You know, if if you do these things, You're going to pay the price because that's what the modern world is going to do to you. And you've taken the money. You have. You signed a contract. You have to behave appropriately. Otherwise, you lose your job.
3: Mm. Okay. Well, let's go to the uh, semi-finals. Leinster Scarlets is probably the pick of them. So let's just look at Russing Munster to start with. Um, Difficult to call. I think this one.
2: Yeah, I mean, Racing has sort of been up and down um, most of the season. It's it's in in France, but it's it's not in Paris. It's not um, it's not. <laughs> well, let's not we not go there just yet around the Dublin situation, but and they've played each other a lot. These two, I, I think it it will probably go to the wire. I think Munster are capable of of going to France and one win. They've done it before. Um, you probably slightly favour Racing, but you wouldn't. Wouldn't put too much money on it.
3: Leinster, scarlets, let's deal with a thorny issue. Not their fault, it's the way it uh, occurs, but it is just you know yards down the road, and the Aviva is a stadium which uh, Leinster players are very, very familiar with. They'll get a huge crowd. It'll be very vociferous. Were it the other way around, uh, and a neutral venue, do you think that would tip things in scarlet's favour, or do you think Leinster are probably a better team overall, or again, is this one where on the day both teams have the ability and the firepower to uh, to beat the other, depending on you know just how things transpire.
2: Yeah, and I think it will come down to the day. I mean, look, it is a it is an advantage to Leinster; it is a quasi home venue, but it, it that's just the way it is. You know, I'm assuming that if Quinns were in this position, they would be able to play at Twickenham, or if Saracens, they could play at Wembley, which you know, and they use those grounds themselves. See, that's just you know, just got to get over it and get on with it. Scarlets have they'll have played there before. They are playing well, um, and if they play well, I mean, it'll be a cracking game, I'm sure. But home advantage to Leinster going well, um, you'd expect them to win, to be honest. But as as we see all every week, and we saw last week with Leicester Northampton um, on the day, it's going to be who who makes those big calls. If the Leinster big players deliver, which they have pretty much all season, you'd be hard pushed to go against them for the whole tournament, to be honest.
3: And looking at the Challenge Cup, there's an all-English semi-final, Gloucester-Newcastle. From an England point of view, would it have been preferable if they hadn't been paired together? I mean, they are guaranteed, uh, England's guaranteed to get one finalist out of this.
2: Yeah, I think from, you know, the the clubs won't care who they're playing, really. It's... um, Look, it, it's it, you'd prefer to be playing in the Champions Cup, the Challenge Cup. Yes, it's it's silverware, and and as players, once you're in this position, you're in a semi-final. You want to you want to go and win the tournament. That's um, quite a tough place for Newcastle to go um, down to King's Home. Gloucester tailed off a little bit, although they had a, a, a good win against Quinns, who really have probably tailed off. <laughs> yeah. They've probably gone on holiday for the for the season. Um, So you'd fancy Gloucester at home, at at King's home, Um, and then the other one you'd probably fancy Cardiff at home as well. Um, Well, their form has been better this year, hasn't it? I mean,
3: talk about underperforming franchises or teams, you know, the great name of Cardiff. For years and years, you've looked at the squad on paper and you thought, I do not understand how they are performing as poorly, you know, week in, week out in terms of consistency, as has been the case Capable of uh, very good things occasionally, but they've been uh, more consistent this year.
2: Yeah, they have, and, and f- from a European perspective, um, it's 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 good. It's good, and it's good ac- ac- across the whole uh, rugby spectrum, in a sense that the Welsh sides are on. You know, Scarlets are back to where they've been in the past. You know, they've they've played in European semi-finals before. Um, Ospreys have had a bit of a, a spell, and it. Historically, really, Cardiff, the Ospreys and, and the Scarlets should be functioning in the way that, that sort of Ulster, Leinster and Munster are from an Irish context. And they just haven't done that for, for many years. It's good to see Scarlets. They're getting a few players back to Wales. The so-called dual contract, I think, is helping, which uh, goes back to the player welfare issue. Um, so for Cardiff to, to be in a European semi-final, hopefully, from their perspective, get into a final Um, It's good for Welsh rugby, although it's hard to say.
3: Time now to speak to Nigel Owens, rugby referee extraordinaire. Um, He always helps this podcast out when he can. Good evening, Nigel. Brian, good evening, you are. First up, quite a difficult one. Um, How much of a celebrity are you and does this get in the way with your refereeing?
4: Um, two simple answers no and no um, because one I, I am not the celebrity at, at all um, I am well known yes well known within the rugby and any, anybody who referees a World Cup final referees test matches or the European finals and matches and referees pretty much every game the sort of top end referees referee now is live on telly every week so you are going to become well known within the rugby circle so yes I'm well known in the rugby circle what also adds to that as then is because I on my sexuality and speaking openly about it, which I do not because I want to be well known for it, it's because I know by speaking out it helps a lot of people. And that's the only reason why I do that. So obviously that has added to becoming well known outside of rugby by other people because of that. And as well, you know, I was I was doing T V work on S 4 C and on stage at thirteen years of age a long, long time before I was refereeing. So the T V work is is what I've always done really and that's I suppose comes natural to me, what's what I enjoy and people tell me I'm pretty good at it. So the byproduct of what I have done really has has made me well known, not just be in rugby because the referee, but the other things I do. But the one thing I will say is this. If at any any time that that impinges on my performance on the field, then I will not be doing those things because the refereeing comes first. You know, people play, players, professional players, on their day off, they play golf or they do other things. Uh, on my day off, by switching off from the pressures of refereeing, I film the Jonathan show, for example, when mm-hmm. the Six Nations is on. On the Tuesday afternoon, you just switch off. You do the TV programme. That's my hobby and I enjoy it and that's how I switch off. But if anything impinges on my performance, then something would have to give way and it would not be the referee because whilst I'm refereeing at this top end of the game, uh, I have a duty to go out in that field and do my best for the most important people in the game, which are the players on the field. And I have to referee that game to the best of my ability, nothing more and certainly nothing less.
2: Look, I I think we've had this conversation a little bit before as well. It's about allowing people to be who they are. And and part of the the sporting challenge... um, in, in the professional era is sort of losing the character sometimes of, of players and referees. And, you know, there's always been characters in referees. You know, when we, when we Clive were playing, Cl- I was just about to say Clive Norling. You know, maybe it's something in the water down then in, 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 <laughs> in Wales. But, you know, you, and, and players players respond to that, respect that. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think and hope that, that the dialogue between referees and players is still um, is still open and honest um, I know there are more pressures, clearly, a lot more pressures, but even in the old days, there was still a lot of pressures. We were all competitive, we wanted to win, but there was a dialogue there and a respect there and i think if you if we take all of that out of the game, you know, I think the game is is worse for it
4: yeah, I, I agree with you Rob. It's, it's it's the fundamental value of rugby. It's such a unique sport um where everything a lot of decisions are subjective you know the the laws of the game allows a referee rightly or wrongly to, to bring his own interpretation to what he feels that decision needs for the best for the game or what he needs and that, and that still means you have to referee within the law so there 's a lot of gray there, and it comes down then to your interpretation, your feel for the game, your game management, not just making the decision but your management of the game your management of the players and uh, it is that respect is is the most important value I think of rugby union, and that is earned. I think players respect referees, referees respect players, and we can't lose from that game. You know, you, you can't lose those characters. There are still some characters in the games now in playing and refereeing, and and not as many as it used to be. I don't think because we live in a in a society now which has changed where. You know, people are afraid to have a joke and a laugh anymore because political correctness has gone to the extreme. There's a a bit of humour and common sense is is missing sometimes, not just in sport, but in society as well. And the pressures as well, you know, of winning the professional game, the people's jobs and stuff. So you have to referee. Yes, you referee the smile on your face and there's a time and place in the game to have that sort of smile and and a banter or whatever you you want to call it. But, you know, that that comes naturally when I referee the game that comes naturally to me I, I would never smile and make a joke over something if I've cost a team three points or I've penalised a player and then I, I make a joke out of it you know that's not right but when it is part of the game and, and your character's on the field in refereeing or playing and that's what I tell our young referees as well look Go out on that field and do your best. Foremost, more important than anything, you are there to referee the game. Nothing more and nothing less. But enjoy it. Be yourself. Don't try to be Nigel Owens. Don't try to be Wayne Barnes. Don't try to be Jerome Gassez or John Lacey. Be yourself. Be natural in the way that you referee that game to the best of your ability. And when I referee the game, it's it's just me being me. I don't go out in that field to say things so I think people are going to like it or I'll have a YouTube clip or I'll be a a celebrity if, if people like what I say I think it's funny. No, you're not there to do that. You're there to referee the game. But also, I think as well, be yourself because it is part of you that makes your ability as a referee, I think. And the same goes for players as well, I think.
3: Uh, I I don't need you to comment on this. I just want to make two points, Nigel. Um, First of all, people say, look, um, he or some referees now, they're interested in their own game. They want this, that and the other. They should just stick to the laws and enforce those. And I say, if you actually did that to the letter of the law, you'd have a game which was completely unworkable. It just would not work. And you can disagree to the degree which referees game manage, but you can't disagree with the principle because it would be unworkable. And secondly, Nigel Owens and other referees make mistakes. Far fewer than players, by the way, but they make mistakes. We've got to a situation now where people are starting to say, he made that mistake because he wants to be centre of attention. He made that mistake because he thinks he's bigger than the game. No, he just made a mistake. Simple as that. It's the way no, right the way that things go. Well Nigel, you had a week off from Pro 14 to Officiating the Welsh Principality Premiership between Clenetly and uh, Neath, how did you, you find that?
4: It was a great game of rugby. It was 41-36, but it, it wasn't a touch rugby game. It was it was full on. They were, you know, you had. Um brilliant skill there they were big hits you know there's a little bit of niggle as you'd expect in a Nif nice, tanelli uh, <laughs> yes. game and how it should be it was a great advert for me for the Premiership and credit to those both teams on the field who really got stuck in and played a hugely really entertaining game of rugby the disappointing thing there on Saturday Brian unfortunately is there must have been maybe, what, 100, 120 people there watching the mm-hmm. game. That, that's unfortunately because now, obviously, you've got the, the regional game, and that's where the crowds go. So it was just, it, that was a disappointing thing, the amount of people watching the game there because it was a great game of rugby. And I tell you, if if that place really had a lot more people watching it, it would have added to the occasion well. And the people who would have been there would have seen a great game of rugby as well. So, yeah, hopefully what the Welsh Rugby Union have done they, I think they've done the right thing. They've, they've spoken to everybody involved at all levels of the game and they're putting forward what they believe now will, will be what will, what will work. And, and, and I think, you know, it looks to me like it's, it's, it's a good thing. So hopefully, with the fruit will be in the pudding, of course, how that evolves now over next season and the season after and stuff like that.
3: Nigel, great to speak to you as always. Uh, thank you.
4: My, my pleasure. All the best.
3: Time now to speak about the women's game. That is right at the sharp end of the season. The first ever Premier 15's final will be between Saracens and Quinns. It will be on Sunday the 29th of April at Ealing Trailfinders. Quins Quinns got there with a conclusive home victory over Wasps and Saracens. Well, It wasn't quite as one-sided as the first game, but 45-26 is fairly convincing over Gloucester-Hartbury. It means we've got numbers 1 and 2 in the Premiership, which is good. It should be a great game. Before we speak to the Quinn's Head coach Karen Friendly, can I just give you some information about that day itself? As I say, I reiterate, Sunday the 29th of April at Ealing Trailfinders, in addition to the inaugural Premier 15s final, they've got the national girls under 15 and under 18 finals. They'll be played earlier in the day and the schedule for 11 am and 1245 pm. Kids have the opportunity to attend the final for free and to watch the two top teams in women's domestic rugby. And adult tickets are also available, and they will only be £10. And that's via englandrugby.com forward slash tickets. Get down there. You'll see a great advert for the women's game at club level. As I said, we can now speak to Karen Finley, the Quinn's head coach. Hello, Karen. Hi, how are you, Brian? Okay, in the end, I think uh, it was a reasonably comfortable victory over Wasps. Or is that gilding it a little bit?
1: Oh, I mean, I think I mean we knew we had our work cut out for us on Saturday. Um, it was a really, really close away game. The first, the first semi play, playoff, um, and we didn't we didn't underestimate what we had to do on Saturday. Um, it just happened to be it was fortunately going to be back at home, back at the stoop, which has been a fantastic venue for us. The players and the whole of the management team. Everybody loves to come back to the soup. Um, and secondly, it was fantastic because the sun was shining and there was a great, great attendance at the game. Came along to really cheer us over that finish line.
3: What sort of crowd was there, there Karen?
1: I think there was over. I think there was about fifteen hundred at one point. Mm. I think because the whole, the whole of the side of the stand that myself and Gary were in was um, really packed. And what was lovely to see was the amount of um, young girls that were there with their families. Um, got really involved. They, like, you know, they, were, they were the ball girls for the day. They aligned the players' tunnel to let the players come out. So there was, there was just some fantastic interaction with, with some of the young female talent that's coming up through the game.
3: Well, you can't say this, but I can. It's probably because you were playing better than the men, to be honest, at Quinns at the moment.
1: Oh, I've just, hey, I'm just going to focus on what <laughs> I'm right, doing. Right. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's a big enough job in itself. Yeah. So, oh, okay, yeah, I, mean,
3: I, w- I won't put you on the spot anymore. You don't, you don't have to respond to that. <laughs> um, Saris, uh, I, I'm I'm pleased in a way that uh, Costa Hartbury, you know, managed to get 26 points because yeah. it was a very one-sided uh, uh, first leg and they've actually been making great strides there, haven't they?
1: Oh, I mean, the, the top four teams this year... Have all had really, really good con- season, um, good good seasons. It's been it's been a real challenge. Um, the quality of the game, I mean, the competitiveness and intensity, everything has gone up a significant notch since the investment um, in this in this new league structure. Um, Gloucester were you know deserved um, in that top four, and they have had a really good season. They look to play a really expansive, exciting brand of rugby. Um, and they just, I think, and I, it, it, the comparison between game one and then their second semi was really noticeable. Um, but it's, it was just too big a deficit, I think, to try and come back from. It really, really put them under the cosh.
3: Well, I've got the uh, report from the Sarri's game. And they, these are the words, they're not my words, but it just say a muscular effort from Marley Packer. And it mentions, again, those Clil, uh girls and... If you're going to overcome Saracens, there is a physical element to their game, which is quite pronounced, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean there are, you know, there are really cohesive back row. You know, you've got some really good talent in there. Both um Poppy and and Marley are, you know, more than deserving of their place in that in that England squad. They're really, you know, they're fast back row. They're they're good carriers. Um, you, you've got to be able to cancel out that threat. Um. But I think I think the beauty of the game is, you know, you, you, you can't win games of rugby um, solely reliant on a game plan that centres on like two three players. I think I think there's, there's there's threats across all the fields. I think they've got other good players in Saracens, which are equally um, as problematic for oppositions to deal with. Um, but I, I mean, it's a huge strong carrying platform that you'd be really naive as an opposition if you weren't thinking cleverly about how you're going to contain that threat.
2: It's great to see that the women's game go forward in in sort of the way it is the strength. Um Brian and I were talking earlier about sort of sevens and fifteens debate and, and it's it's not something that's perhaps widely on the on the agenda yet and yeah. in, in as it is in the men's game but yeah. clearly you know you've got players who are torn between between two forms of the game who would probably like to be playing both in commonwealth games and in 15 a side competitions and it, is is that something that it just need to be thought about going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's been difficult because it's everything, isn't it? Um, there's just the advancement um, and growth in the women's game, and with that, a growth in both disciplines. Um, I mean, it's been fantastic for us to watch um, Jess Breach really develop as a 15s player and have such such phenomenal form in the Autumn Test Six Nations, and then be you know really well deserved selection of um, in that Commonwealth seven squad and, and watching the achievement of the seven squad yesterday. I mean, anything like that has got to be good for women's rugby. Um, I think it's just up to the coaches at the moment. We've got fantastic dialogue between both codes. Um, and I think it's just up to us to try and work out and work with a player to find out how we can best support them in their aspiration and getting a, getting a healthy balance between the two. Because it is achievable because we've done that ourselves this year um, in terms of how we've managed Jess, as other, other clubs are doing.
3: Because I was saying, look, I understand why this has been done, but at the end of the day, the Commonwealth uh, bronze medal is yep. something which I genuinely believe England should achieve with the players they've got in a professional era anyway. They didn't beat New Zealand or Australia. Uh, Australia are majoring in that. And if you're talking about growing women's rugby, and especially with the Tyrrell Premier 15s now being a very viable and vibrant club competition, and you've got the Six Nations, which is the showcase of the women's game, whatever people say, given the crowds that you get in France and so on, if you're going to have to choose between the two this time round, and we all want both to be financed, I'm afraid it's time to look at this again, because you can justify maybe getting a gold medal if you get one. And I know it's outcome biased, but at the end of the day, England because of their playing numbers in the professional era, will do reasonably well in any sevens competition they enter at the moment. When it gets much more specialised, then I can see a a much more cogent case for doing that. But at the moment, if you had, and other teams had, the girls that were being taken away for sevens from 15s in the uh, modern game, in the games week to week, wouldn't that make it a more attractive proposition for um, players, for spectators, and all round?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you want to see the best players in the game um, being available to be seen playing that game. So, you know, undoubtedly, you know, um, it would be it would be fantastic if, if, if when we get to that, but we're just we're not there at the minute. I don't think. I think we've got to look at, you know, there's been some phenomenal advances in the women's game, but I think, it, it, you know, England are doing a really good job of trying to manage both of those programmes. Um, and I think there's some nations. What, what what's really important is is making this game that we all love as inclusive as it possibly can be. Um, and, and some nations are just not at the point of being able to support 15s programmes. Whereas if we can get them involved in the game of rugby um, and, and opening up and growing the game through a 7s and 15s programme at the minute, I think it would be really, really naive and um, short-sighted not to do that. Um, as for what the future is, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you, you know, when you're speaking to a retired front rower, Brian, as you <laughs> fair well know, you're never going to hear me saying that, you know, I know where my passion and life is. It's clearly yeah. within the 15s game. But I've seen us have such, I've seen such um, advance advances for individuals who are just have really blossomed going and, and going, moving from one code to the next. So, you know, as long as that continues, I think we need to embrace it at the minute. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, at some point, given the huge amount of growth there is in the women's game at the moment, it's inspiring for young girls coming through, whether they be seeing Sarah Hunter in a Fifteens Six Nations game or whether they be seeing Jess Breach in a Sevens game. I think it's good for everybody.
3: Karen, good luck in the final. Lot, Brian. Just to remind everybody, Sunday the 29th of April at Ealing Trailfinders. not only have you got the inaugural Terrell's Premier 15s final, you've got the National Girls under 15 and under 18 finals. Kids can get in free and adult tickets are only a tenner. What more could you ask for? Rob, we're getting to the business end of the season and you have to say Saracens starting to get players back starting to look again a bit more like they were when they were hegemonous and when they were conquering Europe. But if any team were to take them on in the way that needs to be done to put the pressure on Saris, it's probably Exeter. So whilst in previous years it's been a difficult game to call, I think it's especially so this year.
2: Yeah, I think so. And it, it, you know, it's, Exeter sort of just about got there last year, didn't they? Well, they, they did get there in the end. But yeah. certainly, I think Exeter, their strength in depth, their organisation, they've become the side that can actually go toe-to-toe with Saracens. They've been very close to them now for a couple of years. Saracens were all dominant and nobody, we didn't feel anybody could actually beat them. I think that included in Europe. Um, and fair play to Exeter, they've closed that gap. Um, Saracens are still incredibly strong, you know. They've, you know, only be only because they're not dominant. We're sort of questioning what yes. they're what they're doing, and and they have had some pretty bad injuries this year. They've missed one or two people, but they're still they're hitting form at the right time. Um, it, it will probably be, oh, we say this, you know, probably will be an Exeter Sarries. They are the two strongest sides.
3: Can you see anyone outside that, irrespective of who gets to the the, the playoffs, um, beating them, or are they quite strong? I think they're quite strong favourites.
2: I don't think it's without possibility. It's not without possibility, but, you know, it's home semi-final territory. Mm. So in, in this competition, if you had neutral venues, when some people are starting to talk about that, neutral venues for semi-finals, which is what happens in France, that would take an advantage away, certainly, but certainly... Finishing first and second. If you did
3: have those, where would you play them? Would you play them at Twickenham or is that a
2: city too big? You probably wouldn't, would you? You'd probably, you'd probably go to a, a football stadium halfway between the two teams. I mean, that's what they do in France. They, they, they pick a venue sort of Well,
3: that's what they don't end. do in football. A lot of people complain about it because they say, you know, semi-finals at Wembley, you know, it shouldn't be there. It should be for the final. And I actually agree with that.
2: Yeah, it's probably done for financial reasons. Oh, as well, it definitely it? Is, yeah, uh, definitely. And, and rugby, which is might... why you can see rugby doing it straight <laughs> away, can't <laughs> <aren't> you? <laughs> but it would take it. away. I mean, it's tough to go down to Exeter to win in a yeah. semi-final. Just as it's pretty tough to go to to Saracens um, and beat them on their home patch. You wouldn't. You wouldn't expect it. That's
3: all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact. Thank you to my co-host Rob Andrew and my producer, as always, Abby Patterson. Remember, please subscribe to the podcast because it's completely free and that way you'll never miss an episode. And please also leave a review on Apple Podcasts and that'll help more people find the podcast. We'll be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye.
4: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.